From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Congressman and state Republican Party Chair Ken Buck joins us live after chaos at the U.S. Capitol. What will it take to unify a divided country and a divided party now that Congress has affirmed Joe Biden as president? Democratic Representative Jason Crow also joins us live. We'll ask about U.S. Capitol security, his efforts to keep others safe during the insurrection, and how to move the country forward as Democrats take control of the House, Senate, and executive office. Then we'll examine how political unrest and violence have taken root in the United States after months and years of divisive rhetoric and the ways this moment may resonate for years to come. Will it undermine democracy and the peaceful transition of power despite new assurances from President Trump? Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their every day. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters with CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. After pro-Trump rioters tried to delay the process, Congress has officially confirmed that Joe Biden is the next president of the United States. This morning, President Trump issued a statement saying that there will be an orderly transition of power on January 20th, but he still falsely insists the election was stolen from him. And he's not directly condemned the violence that took place after he incited people to storm the U.S. Capitol building. Let's get some Colorado perspective on this now. Congressman Ken Buck represents much of the eastern half of the state, and he's also chair of the Colorado Republican Party. Welcome back, Representative Buck. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. In a statement you released with Governor Jared Polis after the chaos yesterday, you said, We all must step up to protect the institutions of our republic, free and fair elections, and the rule of law. What does stepping up look like right now? Well, I think uh, <clears throat> partly it involves um, uh, encouraging people to uh, stay calm and enc- encouraging people to recognize the institutions and the process uh, that we have. I was opposed to using Congress to overturn the vote um, uh, of the Electoral College. And uh, I think that uh, when we got into that debate, and, and especially when a senator joined that debate, uh, it was uh, one of those things that, that uh, uh, fires people up, gives people false hope, and uh, some of the people. And, and I think that it uh, was a mistake to to go down that path. I, I, I think uh, we we know that uh, Joe Biden will be the president. He is the president-elect right now. Uh, he is getting briefings. He is picking his uh, cabinet. Uh, the Democrats uh, just yesterday uh, uh, won the, uh, or at least uh, tied in the Senate and with a uh, tiebreaker vote from the vice president so that the Democrats have the uh, reins of power now in Washington, D.C., and uh, we have to make sure that uh, we are doing everything we can as Republicans to uh, support good policies and 
um, make our voices heard when it comes to policies we disagree with. Vice President Mike Pence tweeted, Peaceful protest is the right of every American, but this attack on our capital will not be tolerated, and those involved will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. In addition, like you said, stepping up may look like asking people to be calm, but does it also look like strong prosecution? Oh, I think there will be prosecutions. There, there were arrests. Um, and uh, the video from uh, inside the Capitol, and every every square inch of that Capitol is covered with uh, camera uh, footage. Um, I think there will be more arrests in the future, and I think that uh, individuals will be held uh, responsible. And they should be held responsible. Uh, they uh, There were police officers injured. There were... Um, uh, there, there was uh, destruction of property. I was in the house floor uh, just uh, feet away from uh, windows being broken uh, with people trying to break into the house floor. And so uh, I think that uh, when you uh, look at the uh, what happened yesterday, we are a country that welcomes peaceful protests, um, as we did this summer uh, when we had uh, disagreements over uh, uh, efforts to defund the police or uh, disagreements over the, uh, or at least individuals uh, highlighting um, uh, instances of, of uh, police uh, use of force. Um, but I think that uh, when when those protests went too far and involved burning buildings and uh, destroying property, there were arrests made and people held accountable and. I believe the same has to be done in, in this situation. You mentioned protests from this summer. There is growing criticism that the police response in this case was too cautious, particularly when you compare it to responses to Black Lives Matter's protests this summer. Remember the use of tear gas to end a peaceful demonstration so the president could have a photo op holding a Bible. In this case, it took law enforcement nearly four hours to secure the Capitol, and reports this morning say just over 50 arrests have been made. What are your thoughts? Well, one one young lady was uh, killed in this process. I don't think that is a um, uh, a lack of a response. Um, I saw a lot of police officers uh, in, involved in uh, use of for appropriate use of force in uh, in the Capitol, and and uh, I think that if anything, they uh, the leadership of the uh, House and Senate didn't anticipate the. Uh, overwhelming numbers of people trying to enter the building. But uh, you're talking about a building that was built uh, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, and the uh, building was uh, not built to be secure. It was built to be uh, open to the public. And so uh, there were a lot of possible entrances and, and, and ground floor windows and uh, people broke those windows and, and entered the building. And once the building was breached, you have a choice. You can uh, either uh, in part destroy the building or uh, you can just uh, slowly and methodically move people out. And, and that's what they did. I was very surprised to hear that there were uh, uh, explosive devices found in the building. And, and that is uh, terribly unfortunate that people thought that, that, that in any way that would be appropriate to to harm the people's house. Do you think if this summer's Black Lives Matter protests had reached the Capitol, that the response would have been the same as we saw yesterday? I'm not going to speculate on something stupid like that. That's that's ridiculous. I, I know that the police do their very best to uh, protect the Capitol, protect the members of Congress, and uh, not hurt people in the process. And, and I, I 
I have no idea what uh, would have happened. But to try to enter, uh, you know, suggest that the the left is treated differently than the right by the Capitol Police is, is just nonsense. Nancy Pelosi uh, doesn't uh, order the police to, to step down because it's a right-wing riot versus a left-wing riot. We're going to move on. The president's divisive and misinformation-laden rhetoric about the election has been building for months, even before the first vote was cast. I'd like to play back a moment from when you joined us in August. I had a, a woman ask me yesterday on, on the airplane on my way back from Charlotte, if the president loses, do I think there will be a coup? Do I think the president will hold on to power? I don't know where this nonsense comes from. It, it, it's unbelievable to me that that people you know, are that afraid of our system breaking down, that there are that many people in our system that would allow uh, a fraudulent elections or a coup or other conduct that is just, uh, you know, things that haven't occurred in the past and that, that won't occur. Can you reflect on that comment now and what does it say about the strength of our institutions? I think our institutions are strong. There's not a single member of Congress that uh, would stand up uh, and allow uh, President Trump to uh, be sworn into office or remain in office beyond uh, January 20th. Um, I think everyone understands that, uh, that Joe Biden won this election. Um, I certainly uh, was the only Republican in, in uh, the Colorado delegation to uh, acknowledge yesterday and, and uh, uh, vote against the objections that were being raised to the Electoral College. But I uh, there is an orderly transfer of power now. Uh, President-elect Biden's and staff have been receiving briefings from uh, the various agencies for, for weeks. Uh, there, uh, the uh, inaugural events are set. Uh, I think people outside D.C. don't recognize the, the transition that's going on in D.C. Um, uh, executive branch staffers, uh, political appointees are leaving uh, at this point, and uh, Democrat staffers are moving from the uh, legislative branch to the executive branch. The the transition of power is occurring, and to suggest that there would be a coup, suggesting that the military in some way would uh, involve itself in uh, the transfer of power is, is absolutely ridiculous in this country. And uh, what happened yesterday was uh, a group of knuckleheads uh, uh, got fired up at a, at a peaceful protest, and some of them uh, came over and, and uh, breached the Capitol, and, and it was a, a crime. It should be prosecuted, but it is not a coup. And, and uh, any member of Congress that suggests it was a coup is, is using the kind of rhetoric that we need to stop using. You call them knuckleheads, but the president even has not directly condemned the violence. On Wednesday, President Trump released a video encouraging his supporters to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order, while also falsely falsely claiming the election was stolen and telling rioters that they were very special and we love you. Should he have directly condemned the violence? Um, yes, I think that he should condemn the, the, the breach of the Capitol. I think he should condemn any assault on a police officer or any other member of the of the public. I think that uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the idea that uh, it is okay to disturb um, a session of Congress or a session of any state legislature or, or, or the government function is is absolutely wrong. That's not protest. That's that's. Uh, uh, tyranny and anarchy, and, and we don't stand for that in this country. So, yes, I think the president could have been uh, more harsh in the words that he used 
in describing uh, what happened inside the U.S. Capitol. A Republican president incited rioters and told his supporters not to accept the results of the election. Republican lawmakers tried to convince Congress to reject votes of the Electoral College. To what extent do you think the Republican Party is responsible for this violence? Well, again, you're misstating uh, what happened. The president, um, in his speech, told people to act peacefully. The president issued a video telling people to get out of the Capitol and to disband um, you, you say he incited violence. Um, you know, people uh, can listen uh, to two different people. One reasonable, one unreasonable can listen to uh, the president's rhetoric and take completely different actions. And so, uh, yes, the president uh, shares the blame in what happened in the United States Capitol. And yes, um, many others uh, share that blame, including uh, people on public radio who, who uh, try to fire up the, the base and divide America. And so I I think that uh, there is a lot of blame to go around, and uh, we should all do our best to not not misstate what, what occurred. We have to conclude here. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you. Bye. Congressman Ken Buck is the chairman of the Colorado GOP and represents the 4th Congressional District. Now let's talk with his colleague, Democratic Representative Jason Crow of Aurora who was also in the House when violence erupted Wednesday. Crow is a former Army Ranger who served tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Representative Crow, welcome to the program. Hi, Avery. The House Republican leader thanked you and a few of your colleagues publicly last night for what you did when the mob arrived. Would you describe what happened? Sure. Well, I was in the gallery watching the debate uh, when um, uh, it became clear that the rioters broke through the outside security perimeter of the Capitol after about 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, what happened after that was security quickly uh, escorted out uh, the, the senior leadership uh, of the House, uh, followed by the members who were on the House floor. Uh, but I was with a small group of about 15 to 20 members who were stuck in the gallery up above. And um, the, the rioters moved so quickly into the Capitol that we ended up getting trapped. Uh, I, I knew that uh, things uh, were um, getting really bad when, uh, instead of escorting us out, the Capitol Police actually locked all of the doors and started to barricade the doors and windows with furniture. Uh, and um, they confirmed to me that, uh, indeed, we were trapped and surrounded by the mob, uh, and uh, there was no way out at that point. So we um, uh, got our gas masks ready, and I helped the other members uh, learn how to get their gas masks because they were going to deploy tear gas. Uh, we we uh, heard gunshots start, starting to go off uh, outside of the chamber, uh, and uh, I was uh, preparing to fight, uh, frankly, uh, getting ready to uh, fight our way out if necessary. And you were one of, if not the last one out. In a tweet yesterday, you described what happened as, quoting here, a coup attempt. That implies someone was planning to take over the government. Who do you think specifically was behind what you describe as a coup? Donald Trump. Uh, let's not mince words here. Uh, you know, it's time for real talk. Uh, the U.S. Capitol uh, was um, occupied uh, by rioters and by a mob that was incited by Donald Trump. But Donald Trump doesn't bear the blame uh, alone at this point. You know, we've had uh, four years of a Donald Trump presidency. Uh, it is really clear who Donald Trump is. Uh, he has made that abundantly clear. And anybody who doesn't know that he is a capable of this, anybody who doesn't know that he's a violent man who has incited violence repeatedly, over the last four years uh, and incited it yesterday with very clear language uh, between him and his inner circle that actually uh, not just encouraged, but 
asked for this to happen, uh, is kidding themselves. Uh, so uh, Donald Trump, uh, obviously the primary uh, responsibility, but uh, those around him, you know, members of Congress, uh, his inner circle that have allowed this to happen, that have enabled this, that have kept their heads in the sand about what he is capable of and are now sitting back and saying, uh, what a surprise, uh, are not being honest with themselves. We just spoke with Republican Congressman Ken Buck, who said yesterday's action was not a coup and that anyone using that word is using language that they shouldn't be right now. He said that the president didn't specifically ask for a violent takeover of the Capitol building. What's your response? Well, and I have a good relationship with Ken Buck, and um, you know I applaud his, his um, opposition uh, to the objections yesterday. But uh, I, I don't think um, after yesterday he and, and, and most uh, folks in his caucus are in a position to caution on the use of language. The bottom line was the president asked uh, his supporters, uh, the, the violent mob, uh, to stop the peaceful transition of power. That's what was asked, and that's what they tried to do. Uh, and, and they failed, uh, and, and they were never going to be successful. Uh, we weren't going to allow that to happen. Uh, the government is far uh, bigger. Our democracy is far stronger than any violent mob. Uh, but they did delay the proceedings by a couple of hours. Uh, after um, uh, we were evacuated and they cleared the Capitol, it was very important for us to return. Uh, we were resolved to return and actually complete that business. And we did uh, a little after 3 a.m. this morning. We certified the election. And on uh, January 20th, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be sworn in uh, as president and vice president, uh, uh, respectively. Your colleague, Democratic Representative Joan Agoose of Lafayette, signed a letter last night asking Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment and remove President Trump from office. Were you asked to sign that letter? Uh, I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. Uh, You know, I probably agree with it. I think that's the right move. But you know, I've been calling for the president to be removed for a very long time. You know, about a year ago uh, this month, uh, I uh, was named an impeachment manager, uh, and I spent the better part of a month uh, making the case for the removal of President Trump. And I was doing that because I knew he was a dangerous man. Uh, he was dangerous, uh, that he was violent, uh, that uh, he could not be trusted uh, holding the keys to power of our government. Uh, and here we are, right? Uh, a year later, uh, here we are. Uh, so, um, you know, I've known for a long time that this needs to happen. There's various ways of doing it. Uh, impeachment, uh, 25th Amendment. Uh, I don't know yet uh, what's the best way to, to go forward. And I'm going to be looking at that. But we do have an immediate task uh, that I think uh, is more important in the next couple of days. Uh, and that is bringing uh, these uh, uh, these terrorists to, to, to justice. You know, we need to see, the American people need to see, and the world needs to see hundreds of people uh, being walked away in handcuffs. These terrorists who uh, threaten the lives of police officers and members of Congress who stormed the Capitol uh, need to be brought to justice, and they need to be brought to justice fast. And so far, only about 50 people have been arrested. Given your military experience, what did you think of law enforcement's performance? Well, the individual officers that I saw... um, performed remarkably well. I mean, I, I know that there's varying uh, descriptions and different videos of different things that occurred at the Capitol, uh, and I can't speak to that, but I can speak to those officers who were trapped with us in the chamber that uh, were prepared to, to lay their lives down for us and had their guns drawn, and as we all uh, got ready for potentially a, a stand, uh, we're ready to do that. And um, uh, there was remarkable courage shown. Uh, I will say this. 
uh, there was a catastrophic security failure at the Capitol. This never should have happened. You know, why there weren't four or 5,000 National Guard troops like there were this summer during BLM protesters uh, protests uh, is uh, mind-boggling to me. There should have been National Guard. There should have been a lot more security. Uh, there should have been effective barricades. Uh, we knew that this uh, crowd and, and, and this riot was coming. Uh, and that is at a senior level within the Capitol Police and, and the security apparatus, uh, they were not ready. Uh, and there needs to be accountability. You served overseas in a war zone. Talk about American exceptionalism, this idea that our democracy is so strong that nothing like this could happen in the United States. Does this blast that idea out of the water for you? No, I, I, I love this country. I'm a patriotic person and I believe in the American idea. And, and despite what happened yesterday, um, uh, the overwhelming majority of Americans are good people. Uh, they're trying to raise their families. They're trying to build businesses. They're trying to put food on the table. Uh, the people that I represent are incredible people, uh, and I draw inspiration from them. And, and we will prevail. Democracy will prevail. I think we will come out of this better and stronger, but we have some very big uh, challenges that lie ahead. We have to come to terms with how we got to this point. Uh, we have to uh, we have to address this radicalization and this extremism that has gripped some people in the country. We cannot ignore it. Uh, and we're going to have to address it head on uh, and not uh, put our heads in the sand. So we have some challenges ahead, but, you know, that's what we do. America faces challenges and we find a way to overcome them. Uh, and that's what I'm going to do in the years ahead. How do we address radicalism and what kind of damage has been done to the institution of government by this? Well, we have to first understand that, you know, we have reached a point where, you know, a, a sizable percentage of the American population is getting false information and they believe it to be true. You know, you think you think about these tens of thousands of rioters, uh, and, and I think many of them truly believed in their heart uh, that this election was stolen, right? That that's what the president has told them. And they're looking at social media sites and conspiracy, th- uh, uh, conspiracy theory sites and QAnon conspiracies. Uh, and they believe this information that has no basis in fact uh, in reality. So we have to address that, that uh, we're no longer a country that um, is operating off of a common set of information. And we can't be the deliberative democracy that we need to be if we can't even agree on the facts to debate. Uh, so we have to figure out how can we get back to um, a mutual understanding and facts. And, and certainly it'll be helpful to not have Donald Trump uh, in the White House with the biggest bully pulpit in the world, uh, expounding those conspiracy theories. Uh, that said, he's not going away uh, anytime soon, even though he's not going to occupy the White House in a few weeks. Uh, so uh, it is challenging. And I don't have all the answers right now, but we're going to have to figure it out. Congressman Crow, thank you for your time. Thank you. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow represents Aurora and parts of Adams and Douglas counties. When we come back, the Colorado professor who literally wrote the book on understanding election-related violence, and another who studies political psychology. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As Colorado tries to reboot the economy, there's a growing problem for working parents. The early childhood workforce isn't keeping up with demand. 
We're asking child care providers for quality care at a low cost that parents can afford, and that's an equation that doesn't quite work. I'm Jenny Brendine from CPR News. Listen through the month for our series about how Colorado is confronting the challenge of the workforce behind the workforce, or find stories online at CPR.org. The past 24 hours shook the foundation of U.S. government, its Capitol building. What will all this do to American society and the way we think individually about our government? I'm joined by Tim Sisk, a professor of international studies at the Joseph Corbell School at University of Denver. Tim, welcome. Thank you, Avery. Also with us, Paul DeBell is assistant professor of political science at Fort Lewis College in Durango. DeBell studies political psychology. Hi, Paul. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having us. Paul, how will what happened over the last 24 hours, the scenes at our nation's capital that people have played over their television screens and on their computers, affect the way Americans think about their country and government? That's the big question. This is a a devastating day, and it is one that we will remember. I mean, January 6th is something that we'll all remember where we were, and these images are are really going to stick with us, Uh, these horrific images of of Confederate flag uh, being marched through the Capitol, of of the Capitol under siege uh, and invaded. And I think that it's going to be emotionally powerful for Americans for a very long time because uh, democracy and and liberty and justice, these aren't just... um, ideals or a system of governance to us, they're really central to our identity of what it means to be an American. And I think that you heard that uh, last night when Congress reconvened, a real sense that something sacred had been violated. Uh, Republican uh, members of Congress saying things like the hallowed halls had been violated, that the right to vote and free elections and the peaceful of powers is sacred. And so this violation is is powerful. It's going to stick with us. Um, and it's going to, I think, I hope, cause a reckoning. Like my, my big hope for this is that it's a transformational awakening to the stakes of, of our political narratives, our political leaders, and that it starts us off on some really important uh, discussions about how to actually uh, live up to the American ideal and that American exceptionalism that you, you brought up with Representative Crow. Tim, you've studied countries in political transition. You even wrote the Guide on Understanding Election-Related Violence for the United Nations. Help us understand how we got to this point. What led up to this? Well, thanks, Avery. I think what what we've seen uh, is a stress test of U.S. democracy and how we how we got to this point was really that this uh, insurrection yesterday. And I think, you know, we can debate about what to call it, a a coup, an insurrection, a riot, rebellion. I think it was an insurrection. And and I think it was just right out of the, you know, Lenin page book about how to try to to start a revolution, you know, and um, in that sense, I think what we saw uh, was very much uh, an effort to stimulate uh, kind of rebellion around the country. And I think that's the most important thing that we should keep in mind about this election crisis uh, is that it didn't take. There were protests in Olympia, here in Denver, other places. And what we've not seen is a sort of outpouring of, uh, of enmity and local level conflict that was hoped for. Uh, so in that sense, this was an election crisis. The crisis appears to be passed, but I think Paul has it right that that crises uh, like these are turning points and that, uh, you know, this can be a turning point toward uh, a worsening of U.S. democracy and increased polarization, or it can be a turning point toward uh, rethinking our election processes, how we got to this point. 
uh, slowly and suddenly. And I think uh, the slow buildup is what we need to address now is the problems with our election system, the problems with our election administration, and the broader problem of social polarization. You say that you think that the crisis is past. Is there something in your research or something in your studying of these sorts of um, election-related violence instances around the world that makes you say that? I think that there are people who are concerned violence could continue. Yeah, thanks, Avery. I do think it's past. And the reason why is that the center here has held that essentially when we look at these kind of election crises, the key issue is the escalation of violence. So when Vice President Biden came out yesterday afternoon uh, and then was followed by President Trump and whatever President Trump said, uh, um, the most important thing was that he did not further instigate violence. I mean, that, that question of, of issue of, of go home was critical. So when you have the key elites like that who kind of come together um, I think that brought us past uh, the uh, crisis, but what really brought us past the crisis was the split within the Republican Party, where we had those like Representative Buck, who sort of stepped up and and uh, said, uh, "Enough is enough on the uh, on the falsehoods and the mobilization of people to address those falsehoods." So that's the key uh, reason why I think that the crisis is passed. And then I'm a comparativist, like uh, Professor DeBell, and and here we look at other places. And uh, the, the military, the role of the military, the role of security forces, we're always loyal to the Constitution. There's never a question of that. So for me, nah, this wasn't a coup d'etat as such. Um, and uh, as a result, I think we'll see, you know, that, the, that this crisis uh, is over. And in fact, this was sort of the last gasp of this effort to try to overturn the election. Paul, what are the long-term effects of what Tim is describing on government, even if the threat of violence could be over, both the way that the government operates and the way people relate to the government? Sure. Thanks for that question. And I I really love uh, Tim's framing of this as something that happened both slowly and suddenly, because this is a long process of of framing uh, politics in a certain way. And, And one thing that I think we really need to recenter is that democracy does require a legitimate opposition, and that's been really called under fire here. Right, the idea that if I lose, that that is uh, definitional evidence that that something unfair happened. And um, you know, the hope is that we can we can see the consequences of this kind of action, and then have some really tough conversations. So I hope that you know Americans can sort of reorient and and realize that we need uh, the the lively debate. Um, that, like like that you had between representatives Buck and and Crow at the beginning, in the long term it could be uh, it could be very damaging, right? This could turn people off from politics. But I hope that for more people it will be a, a moment of awakening, of realizing that this is important, that this is um, this this country and and uh, our political system and living peacefully together uh, and rational based debates are are worth the work. They're worth uh, fighting for. Um, they're they're really worth what we put into them. We also know that Trump has a loyal base and an extremist loyal base. Even when he's not president, he could continue to stir the pot for the next four years or more. Isn't this unprecedented in that Trump continues to serve as an ongoing central point of this issue in division? Either of you could take this question. Uh, Okay, Paul, why don't you take that one? It is unprecedented. I mean, this person is at the center of power. 
and also using he has been using that uh, and, and using that platform uh, using you know what we call the bully pulpit that the, the president has this amazing ability to communicate and um, and it, that, that is that is a scary thought that this has been a long process of, of divorcing from truth uh, from a shared reality in our, our political and social sphere. Um, but again, the hope here is that this is a, a moment when the veil is, is lifted and the consequences um, have become clear and so that we can really have these conversations and, and recenter on, on the, the truth of the matter and, and the truth of the matter is that we need to figure out how to move forward um, and, and, and govern. Tim, Germany went through something similar during a period of unrest after World War II. How did it resolve itself and is that something the U.S. can duplicate? Uh, well, thanks, Avery, for the question. I grew up in Germany, and my dad was a military uh, officer over there, so I grew up and I knew Germany well. Yeah, Germany, uh, after World War II, well, first Germany had the Weimar Republic in the interwar period, and it collapsed, and it collapsed um, you know, with the, uh, with the putsch and with the, uh, the rise of the National Socialists. Um, Germany, after World War II, kind of had a top-to-bottom review of its election processes and election system, and uh, came up with an electoral system that kind of blends proportionality and inclusion uh, with a federal system and and uh, with the so-called blender in Germany, the the federal states. And so Germany went through a period of uh, election reform that also revisited the nature of the executive. Right. So you have the chancellor, but then you have a ceremonial president, but, but like in Israel in that regard. And so Germany could be a model for the United States, and we could uh, spend the rest of the day talking about election systems, Um, but there are a whole number of election systems that the United States, I think, should look at um, that would be an alternative to the sort of minimum winning coalition. I mean, let's keep in mind that 2016 uh, was a minority uh, government, uh, led to a minority government in terms of the election system. So... uh, I think the key issue here is that the United States needs an electoral commission to look at the German model, uh, to look at how South Africa revisited its elections when it went through a democratic transition. Uh, And uh, some of this is already taking place, places like Maine, Alaska have gone with ranked choice of voting. So there's no shortage of alternatives uh, that can help politics be more moderate. I mean, that's the key of this election engineering is how to prevent, you know, these ethnic entrepreneurs, as I've described President Trump, uh, you know, from uh, from going to the extremes in order to uh, be elected. And this is a critical question in political science about how you sort of reconcile democracy with diversity. And I think the answer to that, I'd be interested in Paul's take on this, is, is through proportionality and through inclusion. And that's not what we have in the United States. We have a winner-take-all kind of system, uh, and I think it leads to conflict. I mean, and there's obviously already so much distrust about Americans' elections or about America's election system, and a lot of that's fueled by misinformation from the president himself. How do you both balance the idea of system change, but also rebuilding trust in a system when people already have had that shaken? This is really hard and a great question because there's been a lot of damage done. I mean, um, there have you know the. President Trump spent a lot of time before the election and before the 2016 election, um, really, really challenging the legitimacy of the elections. And I really appreciate Tim's point. This is an opportunity for us to have some really overdue and important discussions um, about 
how can we have our political institutions, importantly, our electoral institutions that moderate our politics rather than incentivizing greater polarization, rather than um, incentivizing us uh, politicians to fire up the base, rather to pivot to the center. Because, you know, as Tim said, the center has held now, but but this is a long-term process uh, that we, we really need to hold in our minds that it's important for us to have conversations in good faith about how we can change American institutions for the better. And I would agree that introducing proportionality into our electoral systems uh, with something like ranked choice voting really helps because then it changes the incentives for politicians from firing up the bases of their parties, like for on, on the extremes, to really thinking about um, moderating their appeals so that it, it is widely acceptable to most Americans. I wonder, is the problem a lack of moderation or are people feeling that they aren't being heard or that they're not getting what they need from government or even society? Well, thanks, Avery. Anytime you see violence like we saw yesterday, I, I go to kind of a frustration and aggression model of violence, you know, that and, and that begs the question, why are people frustrated? I and mean, what is the source of this? And you know, I pretend to get uh, to get the insurrectionists on the couch and figure out what's going on inside uh, people's heads. But the frustration, I think a lot has to do with uh, the changing nature of U.S. society. We've seen this where you have formerly dominant groups uh, that see changing demographics uh, and react and, and fear for the future. And I think that's what we've got to address is why people fear for the future. Why do they fear a more diverse society? Why do they fear empowerment of those who have been historically marginalized. Uh, So to me, I think that's a critical question for the United States is sort of uh, rethinking the U.S. used to be a so-called ranked society, right? Ranked according to identity and and class. And and we're moving beyond that, albeit slowly. Uh, And so these are the these these are some of the growing pains that the United States will absolutely have to address as societies around the world become more more diverse. I want to go back to the idea of leadership that you mentioned earlier, Tim. The two leaders of the major political parties, President-elect Joe Biden and President Donald Trump, handled the results of the election very differently. How did their reactions contribute to the violence that we are seeing now? Well, this is uh, the notion of playing with fire, and particularly on the side of of, uh, President Trump. And uh, this debate that we heard earlier this morning uh, between our two representatives on the question of incitement, uh, to me, it was quite clear that President Trump was engaged in in incitement. It was a very deliberate strategy, again, to try to provoke little insurrections across the country and to, to create chaos and to you know, potentially lead to some sort of situation where the Insurrection Act might be invoked. So I carefully read the president's speech, and to me it was quite clear uh, that this was incitement. Uh, and, you know, the term illegal was used 24 times uh, in the, that speech yesterday. The, the word stupid was used five times. <laughs> the word weak uh, was used 12 times. And a key passage in the president's speech yesterday uh, really, to me, gave uh, the protesters both a license to act, but also what we would call an injunction to act. In other words, sort of, a you know, go seize power uh, was written into the script. And, and um, you know, the president said, you'll never 
take back our country with weakness, right? And so these are coded words, and I think uh, you know we we know how they were meant, and we understand now how they were received. So for me, this was clear case of incitement. I don't know if there's any question about that. And how could this have been prevented? Well, it could have been prevented with, you know, honoring the result of the election. I think most clearly uh, a concession. This is why concessions are so important, because they are a commitment to a peaceful transfer of power, which is the very heart of the democratic system of governance. Um, and, and the continued failure of uh, President Trump to provide that concession it is very problematic. Yeah, and the prevention question is a good one, Paul's right. It's, uh, um, it's very difficult. Anytime something bad happens, one might look back and say, well, this could have been prevented. And it's true. This could have been prevented. And I think uh, a Representative Crow's comment about the lack of the security at the U.S. Capitol, where I used to work, uh, is absolutely true. But I think we need two things in terms of prevention. Uh, we need to first have a commission of inquiry that would really look at this top to bottom um, because there are allegations. We saw the BuzzFeed article uh, this morning that this was planned. Uh, this was uh, not a spontaneous event. So we need to get to the, to the bottom of the culpability uh, around this. But a commission of inquiry can also, you know, maybe what we might call a truth commission or a truth and reconciliation commission has been used in uh, many other countries uh, can also identify exactly where prevention failed. And I think this is this is the key part. It does go back to the election system, to the election administration, uh, and to the relationship uh, of the various security forces within D.C. I mean, there's more cops in D.C. than there are lawyers, but they're not coherent. I mean, there's the Capitol Police, the Secret Service, the National Guard, and you get Virginia and Maryland involved, et cetera. Uh, so that's one thing for prevention that I think needs to be done, com uh, commission of inquiry. And the other goes back to the sort of longer-term question of the constitutional arrangements in the United States. And, and here, I think the, the role of international actors could be very helpful. Uh, there's a lot of understandings around the world about how not, not only what are the best options to reform an ailing political system, but also the pathway to get there. You know, what, how, how do you elect a constitutional convention? convention? How, do they, how do they operate? I think, you know, crises like this uh, can, as Paul suggested, raise early remarks there. Uh, can can be an opportunity. So to me, I think we need uh, we need a couple of key uh, institutions created, commission of inquiry, and then uh, a sort of an expert commission on constitutional reform. Paul, even without the election, it's been a turbulent year, a pandemic for many people, subsequent economic crisis, a national reckoning with racial injustice. Is there a possibility that this heightened the anger and even the violence? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, th I think so. You know, these things don't exist in vacuums uh, and, and neither do our perceptions and emotions about what's going on. So this you can see this. I think that Tim's point is exactly spot on. This is a cycle. This is uh, a long um, increase in frustration, anger. And, and, and now I think you see clear expressions of rage. And I would very much agree that this is a, 
an opportunity to have um, some some truth and, and and reconciliation. That truth is really really important. Finding some shared truth. We're going to always have discussions about election fairness. This is not going away. This is central to our political system uh, and hopefully to our political system going forward. As one of the um, scholars who studies uh, authoritarian governance and totalitarianism in the 20th century, Snyder said, um, "You submit to tyranny when you renounce the difference between what you want to hear and what is actually." the case. And so some national reckoning uh, and, and moving on the, past this in good faith would, will be really important. I also think that it's important for us. I mean, we see some really important evidence that um, social isolation and loneliness uh, and a sense of, of just um, social anxiety uh, is, is really correlated with uh, more extremist behaviors, with, with more likelihood of accepting um, you know, false things that are that are said on the internet or social media, and so building uh, our communities, you're focusing on getting to know one another. That, that that's something that's been really hard during the, the COVID pandemic, of course. Um, but as we look towards 2021 and beyond, and to sort of rebuilding our country, uh, those local connections, getting to know people that you disagree with, and seeing that they're not to be feared and hated, but to be debated and respected, uh, is going to be something that that I hope uh, will happen, and that I hope will lead to healing. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Amy. Paul DeBell is a professor of political science at Fort Lewis College in Durango. Tim Sisk is the director of the Institute for Comparative and Regional Studies at the University of Denver. There is no denying this is a very heavy time for our country. How do you take care of yourself and cope with national trauma in the midst of a prolonged global pandemic? Lisa Vallejos is a Denver psychologist. Hi, Dr. Vallejos. Hi, good morning. I think we could all use some tips. What are a few concrete things people can do when they're feeling overwhelmed or scared? Sure. The first thing that I think is, and I would encourage everybody who's listening to even try it right now, is to take a moment, put your hands over your heart space, take a deep breath in to the count of four, exhale to the count of four, and repeat that same pattern of breathing with your hands on your heart space for about uh, three or four cycles of breath. Um, research has shown that putting your hands over your heart and breathing in that way releases cortisol, which is a feel-good chemical and helps people to feel more peaceful and grounded. And it can be done in just a matter, matter of moments. Oh, I just did that here in the studio. And it does feel very calming. I remember last spring when psychologists and counselors anticipated a wave of people who would struggle with mental health because of the pandemic. And there has been a major uptick in folks seeking treatment for almost a year now. Do you expect another influx of people reaching out for help? Absolutely. We are living in uh, really what I would describe as unprecedented times with the pandemic, with the civil unrest, with all of the uh, events that are happening, not only within the United States, but around the world. And people are really feeling um, at their wits end and feeling like they need to get some more um, support and some more scaffolding in place to be able to withstand these very challenging times. I imagine for some people, stress about politics and democracy and the state of democracy in the U.S. may linger long after Biden is sworn into office. What advice do you have for people dealing with drawn out stress? Sure. Well, that, that's where the day-to-day comes in because we are living in, and this will continue to be an issue for quite some time in my view. And it's the day-to-day things that can help us mitigate the stress. So it's the taking the time to breathe. It's things that may seem silly on when I say it, but it really matters. Drinking water, staying hydrated, um, stretching, 
eating at regular intervals, eating healthy food, going to sleep and having good sleep hygiene. Those are all things that will offset some of the trauma that we're experiencing. And of course, getting into therapy, any type of support groups, any type of um, community, of course, practicing social distancing and keeping oneself safe is are going to be the things that will help offset some of the um, continuing and ongoing cultural trauma that we're all experiencing. And right now, the relationships that we lean on usually can even be a source of stress, particularly when values or political beliefs conflict. People are so polarized in the sources of information they trust, it can feel like you and your loved ones live in alternate realities. Do you have advice on navigating those relationships? Sure. If you have family members who are on the opposite side, one of the best things to do in order to maintain that relationship, if that's what you desire, is to not talk about these things, to have loving but strong and solid boundaries in place. Something like, I know that if we talk about politics, we're going to argue it's going to end up poorly for both of us. So in order to preserve our relationship, I will not engage in that conversation with you. And then having the courage and the fortitude to be able to stick to that boundary. So if that is brought up, so if you're talking to a parent, for instance, and they bring up politics, being willing to say, I'm going to have to end this conversation because I won't talk about this with you because I love you and I don't want to disrupt our relationship. And then following through with that is maybe the only way to preserve those relationships without causing a lot of additional harm and trauma to an already fragile situation. We only have a few seconds left, but give us a word about social media right now. Distance. Delete, delete, <laughs> delete. <laughs> One word repeated three times. Continue to delete or limit your co consumption. Um, watching social media is not going to change the outcome and staying connected to it is only going to continue to cause your own uh, impact, negative and detrimental impacts on your own emotional and mental well-being. Dr. Villejos, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Dr. Lisa Villejos is a psychologist in Denver. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. Paolo Shalsana. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.